This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we got Q&A this week. It's been a little bit since we've done an episode with Q&A. Questions have been piling up, so let's launch in. Question number one. In Oklahoma, state question 788 recently passed in favor of medical marijuana, opening the door for recreational marijuana. Is this good for your state and the people? So I appreciate this question. Thanks a lot. This is like the first question. So uh, let's get started off with a bang, I guess. So so just so everyone knows, uh, I am in Edmond, Oklahoma, in the state of Oklahoma. Yes, there was the Medical Marijuana Legislation Initiative. That's basically what this was. And so that was on the ballot here in my home state on June 26th of this year. And so essentially a yes vote on state question 788 that supported the measure to legalize the licensed cultivation, use, and possession of marijuana for medicinal purposes. So that is what a yes vote got. So this passed, which was very surprising to a lot of Oklahomans and a lot of pundits really around the country that this passed, and it passed with a a pretty big majority. So it was a 57%, uh, around 57% majority. There were over 500,000 votes for yes on this. So um, before I get into really the question that was asked here, and I appreciate the the listener for sending this in. Before I really get into that, I'll just kind of get into like my personal views on marijuana use just in general before we, we get into all the technical side. So for me, that is not a substance that I have ever used. I've never smoked marijuana. I've never had any edibles. I've never done anything like that. And frankly, it's never appealed to me. So it was kind of the same thing. Like, uh, when I first started watching people abuse marijuana, it was the whenever around the same time I was watching people abuse alcohol. And so when I saw these people using these substances, I was just like, God, y'all are losers. Like you're 15 years old, 16 years old. You're so high. You don't know what's going on or you're paranoid or you're just completely worthless or you're getting high all the time and, and you're not taking care of your, your grades or the, the people in your life. Like you're, you're so drunk. You have to like walk on all fours to the bathroom so you can go throw up. So, I mean, really it's just kind of one of those things where it just never appealed to me because when people were using it, it was just like they, they weren't using it for medicinal purposes. They were just using it to get high. Right. And so it's just kind of one of those things that never really appealed to me. Like same thing, like I was saying with alcohol, I had my first drink when I was 20 and I was in Europe. So it was legal at the time. So it was just not something it wasn't like some sort of like prudish thing. Like, Oh, I'm just going to be super conservative and not do anything bad. It was just like, I saw people doing it and I just didn't see the utility of doing it myself. And so you fast forward to, you know, June 26th of this year, when the state question comes up, I voted no on state question 788. And you would think, well, yeah, of course, cause you've never done it. And you ignored all the, the positives and all those different things. But, but here's the thing is whenever I do any type of voting, so especially on state questions where it's going not just to elect a person that might change the law, but electing or basically making a decision about something that will become law. I make sure that I'm, that I'm up on my information, that I'm not just kind of pulling information out of my butt or using oversimplified arguments. And so here's kind of the reasons why I voted no. And I really, I kind of go all over the place. I'll try to keep all, all my thoughts straight here. But the first thing was, is that people in favor of legalizing medical marijuana in Oklahoma said that it would kill the black market, right? That was one of the things that they said is like, you know, if it's legal, then we don't have the black market. And this is not true at all. It's literally not true at all. If anything, and not really, if anything, this definitely has happened. The black market goes up. It explodes. I mean, it certainly has in Colorado, right? That was the first state to um, legalize recreational marijuana use. The black market skyrockets. Because here's the thing. 
these Mexican drug cartels, they make, you know, like some people assume these are like random reports and things like that, but 15 to 25% of their revenue is from marijuana, right? So the rest of it comes from like, you know, extortion or kidnapping or human trafficking, other drugs, stuff like that. And so the thing is, is these cartels, they are helped by the legal legalization of marijuana because more people will become addicted or more people will just want to smoke it without being addicted, right? They're not actually addicted. They just want to smoke it. And there's going to be a lot of people that are like, well, why in the world now that I, that I smoke marijuana, why would I want to go and pay extra, pay a premium and do it through the government and then know my, my purchasing habits with these substances and things like that? Why wouldn't I just go, go to the dude around the corner? Right. So th- that was one of the things that was out there is it was just like a really stupid view that people are like, oh, the black market's just going to disappear. That was really ridic- ridiculous. The other thing that people said that were in favor of legalization they said that this would defeat the opioid epidemic and it won't there's there's really no tangible non-anecdotal arguments that show that the opioid epidemic is stemmed whenever there's recreational or medicinal marijuana that's been introduced into that populace it, it's just not there so i understand why people would say that like you know why not smoke a joint as opposed to getting a prescription for oxycodone like i i get the argument the argument's just a dumb one uh, there's also people that were in favor of this that said it would decrease the number of people that were incarcerated for you know marijuana marijuana related arrests and this isn't true at all so here's the thing is yes a law like this and similar ones around the country it kind of decriminalizes marijuana possession for personal use but but there's a reality here that i don't think people realize and that is that that most people are not in jail just because they had personal amounts of marijuana. It actually, I looked this up, it constitutes 0.3%. So 0.3% of state inmates are incarcerated for marijuana possession. Like, just think about that. Think about the things that you heard about, you know, the decriminalization. It's like, it's ridiculous. Almost 100% of the people incarcerated are incarcerated for trafficking, not possession. So you always hear that and it's just like, no, that's completely, completely wrong. And here's the other thing that's kind of on the no side of this question is there are, there will be large increases in marijuana, marijuana related DUIs. It just has to be that way. Right now, some people quote those stats incorrectly because obviously if there was no medicinal marijuana and then all of a sudden it comes in, of course, you're going to have, you know, there's going to be a more ubiquitous nature of use of this particular drug, but marijuana related DUIs skyrocket, right? And again, the black market doesn't go away. So it's not, I mean, we're not really going to have those same issues. And so these, these guys that are trafficking in marijuana now are not going to just stop trafficking once it's become legal. They're still going to get arrested. And there were also people that were in favor of this that said, you know, it would solve specifically for my state that it would solve the state funding issues for education and education overall. Because here's the thing is there is an education epidemic in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, Even if you're not from my state, you probably saw some of the highlights and, and, you know, the overhead shots, uh, outside the state Capitol, all these teachers and people in supportive teachers for these pay raises and things like that, just trying to get us up to the national average. And, and here's the thing I get it. But the thing is, is we've been sold this bill of goods as Okies a lot. We've been sold all these different things that was going to fix education in our state. So uh, we were told that these tax increases that we're about to have, that that's supposed to fix education, right? It's going to keep our best teachers here and get our kids over the hump. That, and that's not true. We were told, you know, that paying these teachers more is, is going to is going to all of a sudden make these kids uh, be better and these teachers will be better. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to happen. Just because you pay them more doesn't automatically make them better at their jobs. You know, we were told that casinos, when we brought in uh, the 
the uh, tribal casinos, that that was supposed to help us fix the educational pro- problem, and we still have it. We were the lottery when they brought the lottery to the state of Oklahoma. That was supposed to fix the the budget crisis with funding for education. That didn't do it. You know, uh, there was like back in the day, there was like a per glass liquor tax that was supposed to fix everything, and that hasn't fixed it either. So. These people that are going out there basically saying, hey, let's legalize weed. And then all of a sudden our kids will be able to have brand new textbooks every year. It's just it's fallacious. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, like none whatsoever. So, like, just stop selling that line. And here's the thing is a lot of people, especially the people that were on the pro side here, the yes side, they look at Colorado as kind of that shining example of how this is, quote unquote, working. Now, here's the thing is Colorado is making money. It's not like an, an ungodly amount of money, like, but they are making good, good money at this. But you also have to look at what's happening in these other places or what's happening because of what's being done in these areas. So here's the thing. Teen use of marijuana in the state of Colorado is 50% higher than anywhere else in the United States. Teen use. Now, remember, you're, you're supposed to not be under the age of 18 and using uh, using medical marijuana for anything. Right. But magically, it's 50 percent higher there than it is anywhere else. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out why. And, and here's the other thing. We kind of talked about this on the DUI side, but there's been a huge increase in fatal car crashes where drivers were under the influence of marijuana. Right. And it's also creating issues for cops because it's a whole lot harder to determine that somebody is high than it is to determine that they're, you know, that they're drunk right? They just do a breathalyzer test. So you're basically having all these cops go out there and they're having to, you know, probably like prove that you're high on marijuana using the smell test. You know what I mean? Which is not really a great test. Like you could just smell bad. It doesn't necessarily mean you've been smoking weed. Um, and some of the other reasons why I really wasn't in support of this was the original wording of the state question, state question 788 was, it was unbelievably liberal and broad. It was unbelievably broad. There were, there were essentially no qualifying medical conditions listed. So, you know, literally, and this is not me being hyperbolic, you could stub your toe and be like, ouch, I need a marijuana card. And if you go to a doctor that's open to that, then boom, you've got your card, right? Um, there, the other thing is, um, in a lot of these areas, that have medical marijuana or that have recreational now, it all started with medical. So no one just says medical marijuana is good enough. It always leads to recreational. And I have my serious misgivings and issues with recreational marijuana use. Also, there were no zoning laws as any part of this question. So literally you could be a business owner in a strip center of, of some sort. And then all of a sudden on either side of you, you could have a weed shop, right? And again, it's just kind of one of those things where, you know, that's not a reflection of your business, but it may stop patrons from coming to you if they're going to be so close to one of those areas. That doesn't mean it's right or wrong for those patrons to do that, but it is a reality. And, you know, the thing is with any substance, right? So the more readily available a substance is, I mean, think alcohol, think cigarettes or whatever, the higher percentage of adolescents are going to abuse it. Like we've got statistics and we've got research like out the wazoo on this, that whenever these things are more available, that teens end up using it, adolescents end up using it. And here's the thing. A lot of people, you know, there's uh, different studies uh, that people try to refute this, but all in all, when you look at basically adolescents that are abusing marijuana, uh, marijuana contributes to psychosis and schizophrenia in adolescents. Um, it, there's direct linkages with it reducing IQ in adolescents. And here's the other thing that people like try and fight against it, but there's really no medical evidence for the contrary. About one in six adolescents, about one in six, they become addicted even after a single use of marijuana. 
So that doesn't mean they're addicted for life. It doesn't mean they can't get out of that hole, but one in six becomes addicted after a single use, right? It's like their brains can't possibly turn off the dopamine receptors once they took in that, that substance, right? So those are just the practical reasons. So that that's just on my side of things. There was way too much uh, on the no side. And, you know, that kind of went against, you know, the the libertarian in me. I'm I'm conservative and libertarian on certain things. It kind of went against that. But it just didn't make a lot of sense for us to do that. I thought it was going to be too much of a public health hazard. I thought it was going to be too much of an issue because for every one kid that, you know, needs CBD oil in order to take care of their seizures or something like that, there's going to be a thousand or 10,000 people that are using marijuana just to get high. And so uh, it's just kind of one of those things that I just don't know a way that it can be regulated by a highly inefficient government to where it doesn't become a detrimental issue. But, but again, this is a Christian men's podcast. So what's kind of the Christian view on marijuana use? Because here's the thing is the Bible is a lamp unto our feet and the Bible is a guide for a lot of things that we say, but the, the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about everything, right? The, the Bible doesn't talk about guns. The Bible doesn't talk about, you know, nuclear weapons and it, it doesn't mention marijuana like by name. Right. So how do we kind of get into this? So the, the thing that I did notice with a lot of Christians is that uh, they, they tend to oversimplify the arguments against marijuana. They, just, they, they make it overly simple, which thus makes it pretty easy to debunk. And so uh, one thing that I thought was good, I found an article on Christianity Today, and the article was called, When Pot is Legal, What Do We Say? When pot is legal, what do we say? So this was a pastor that was basically like, look, we know where the culture is going. We know where the law is going. So this is going to eventually be legal across the country for recreational use. There's almost nothing to stop it. Right. And so um, I would just want to read a couple of different things here from this portion of the article, because I thought it was really important how he worded it, that if you go too much into oversimplified land, it's going to get you into trouble. So this is kind of a a back and forth that he had had with a few people at different times. So this is what he would say. Pot is bad for you and our bodies are temples that we need to take care of. And this was the response. So is alcohol, tobacco, coffee, and sugar. What is this world? What in this world is not bad for you? Bus exhaust causes cancer. And according to California, so does everything else. My missionary friends in Nepal constantly fall seriously ill due to contaminated water, bacteria, chemicals, etc. Should they abandon their post? Super smog in China is killing thousands of people daily. Is it immoral to choose to live in a Chinese city? Should I avoid tap water to stay free from the chlorine and fluoride? And then there was another argument this guy made is pot is worse than alcohol. You can't use it in moderation. And then here's the response. Worse specifically how? Certainly not according to any study or basic cursory glance at the impact of either substances on our society abroad or individual levels. And what about using THC in a way that does not require smoking, such as vapor, brownies, or pills? What about using THC in small doses, equivalent to an IPA or a glass of wine? Who measures intoxication? Is it a certain percentage? Is it a particular hindrance on one's capacity to function? Is it okay to drink two beers, three? Is tolerance different for different people? And then here's kind of the other side that if you're going to make some oversimplified uh, arguments, here's another one. Pot is never mentioned in the Bible, but wine is. And then the response to that could be something like t-shirts and coffee are not in the Bible either. Take off your shirt and throw away your mug. And and another argument made here, pot is legal now, which means it is okay for Christians to use. So here's the response to that. Is it okay to use the Christian measure of goodness? I could be an alcoholic, adulterous, deceitful, prescription abusing, manipulative, hate-filled connoisseur of grotesque pornography and still be okay legally and socially. Does the government stamp of approval mean I should partake? or even can partake with, with moral uprightness? 
What about dope smoking is truly profitable for you, more importantly, for your neighbor? What would Jesus smoke? Right? So I thought that was very interesting. The thing is, is you find yourself in a trap on either side of the argument when you oversimplify it. You're basically just opening up a bear trap that you're going to trip in, trip into and it's going to get you. Right? And then there was another article I found that I thought was particularly helpful for Christians that are trying to think through this issue. And it was uh, written by Joe Carter, who was writing for the Gospel Coalition. And it was called, Is Recreational Marijuana Use a Sin? So I just want to read through some of the things that he wrote because... This is kind of an argumentation breakdown, and I thought it was incredibly helpful. So it's it's somewhat complicated, but just, you know, if you're listening to it at two times speed, bump it down to one and a half or something like that, just so you can get it. But I'll try to read it so we can all nail it. Okay, so here's Joe Carter. To provide an answer rooted in scripture and Christian ethics, we must use analogical reasoning. In his essay, The Place of Scripture in Christian Ethics, James Gustafson states the commonly accepted method of scriptural analogy. Those actions of persons and groups are to be judged morally wrong, which are similar to actions that are judged to be wrong or against God's will under similar circumstances in Scripture, or are discordant with actions judged to be right or in accord with God's will in Scripture. While this may seem rather obvious, it raises the question of how we determine whether an action or circumstance is similar to an action judged to be wrong in Scripture. Legal scholar Case Sustine explains how we apply analogical reasoning. This kind of thinking has a simple structure. One, A has characteristic X. Okay? Number one, A has characteristic X. Number two, B shares that characteristic. Number three, A also has characteristic Y. Number four, because A and B share characteristic X, we conclude what is not yet known, that B shares characteristic Y as well. Is there an analogical action that is judged to be wrong or against God's will that's similar to the recreational use of marijuana? Indeed, there is a clear example that is mentioned frequently in the Bible. Drunkenness. At the end of this article are several scriptural references to drunkenness and sobriety. Drunkenness in the Bible is the state of being intoxicated by alcohol. A, intoxication by alcohol ingestion, has characteristic X, produces a psychoactive effect. That is, affects brain function, resulting in alterations in perception, mood, consciousness, cognition, and behavior. B, intoxication by marijuana ingestion, shares that characteristic. Because A and B share characteristic X, we conclude what is not yet known. That B shares characteristic Y, which is an action that is judged to be against God's will, i.e. is sinful. Reasoning by analogy, we can... We can determine that since it is sinful to become intoxicated by alcohol, it is sinful to become intoxicated by marijuana. So if, if you didn't get all that, guys, I got to be honest, I had to read it a couple times through. My brain just doesn't work that efficiently, but I finally got it. Go back and just rewind, like just, you know, you got 15 second rewind, boom, boom, boom. Just go back and hear that again, because that's incredibly important. Again, when we look at things that are explicitly talked about in the Bible, and then we're trying to look at things that are not explicitly talked about in the Bible, we have to use the Bible as our guideline. It's just, it's what's make the most sense to us, right? But um, as we kind of wrap up this question, the best argument that I heard for the use of, or against the use of marijuana was by Pastor Jeff Lacey, I think is how you say his last name. And he wrote this for Desiring God. And, and the article was called Marijuana to the Glory of God, question mark, right? Marijuana to the Glory of God kind of thing. And so this was a pastor up in Portland because of course he would be up in Portland. But this guy uh, used to smoke marijuana every day. That was like in the first sentence, I believe, of the articles that he used to smoke all the time. But as you kind of get down through his arguments, and I'll, I'll post the, the link so you can look at it later. Here was a couple of paragraphs that he wrote that I thought was incredibly uh, efficient in terms of his explanation of why we should or shouldn't use marijuana. Here we go. 
Even though cannabis is never directly mentioned in scripture, we do have God-revealed principles to guide and direct our thinking about its recreational use. We often get help on specific questions when we keep our eyes on the big picture. What is the end game for the Christian life? What should we be aiming at in all things? As Christians, our goal is knowing and experiencing the full and undistorted reality of the glory of God in our resurrected physical bodies. In your references, 1 Corinthians 15, 12-49, Philippians 3, 20-21, and 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. This is our trajectory as Christians. This is our aim. God is glorious beyond measure, and Christians seek to experience the reality of His glory for the sake of His glory. Sin has distorted our vision and corrupted our world. Ever since sin first entered the world, all of us have been born spiritually dead, unable to discern the true glory of God. He references Ephesians 2, verses 1-5, through 5, Colossians 2, verses, verse 13, and 2 Corinthians 4, 4. When we experience the redemptive work of Christ through the Holy Spirit, we are awakened to the reality and beauty of God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. But until we see Him face to face, we still see His glory as through a glass dimly, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. As redeemed believers, we are on a journey to knowing Him without obstruction. Therefore, we do not want to distort reality. Rather, we aim to know Him as He really is. We want to see things as they really are. The Christian use of any kind of psychoactive substance should always align with the gospel goal of looking to see things clearer. We do not want our vision of reality distorted. Okay, so with all that being said, and I know that that's a lot there. I know about once every Q&A podcast, I kind of go really far into one subject. But back to the original question, is this good for my state and my people? No, I think unequivocally the answer to that is no. Now I can say when this passed, it wasn't like, you know, there wasn't wailing and gnashing of teeth in my household. I wasn't throwing things things in the yard, okay? But I really do think there are some serious misgivings. Uh, I don't think that people that make the the crazy arguments about it being a gateway drug and, and that's like non-founded in any type of research, I think that's that's increasingly unhelpful when you say things like that. But I have, I have very, very serious misgivings uh, about our uh, legalization of this in our state. And this is regardless of what happens. Uh, you know, Mary Fallon and the, the Oklahoma legislature, they have this tendency to kind of change laws even after the state questions have been approved by the populace. It's not really a thing that I, that I appreciate, even if it goes in my favor. Got to be honest about that. But um, so regardless of how that happens, it's going to come eventually. Like it's just going to happen eventually. But I think for us as Christians and as Christian men, I think that the dictates that are put forth in the Bible and the hints that we get about things that are mind all altering uh, to the point of uh, excess, I think are really, really important for us to consider when we ourselves are considering partaking in a particular thing and also when it comes up in the public square. All right, guys, I know that took a while, but let's launch into the next question here. If you were an MMA fighter, what would your walkout song be? Okay, that, that's kind of a cool question. Um, let me think. Um... I feel like I can't narrow it down to one because I, I don't have any MMA fights coming up soon. So surprise, surprise, the cat's out of the bag there. But um, there, there are three songs that kind of come to mind. Like whenever you think through when you're watching, because, you know, I, I have thought about that quite a bit. Like if you were walking in the cage, like what would you want coming out? So the first one that comes to mind is the song The Finisher by O Sleeper. And surprise, surprise, these are probably all going to be metal songs. But uh, the song The Finisher by O Sleeper, it's off their album Son of the Morning. And the thing about this song that's so awesome, it's kind of a concept album. The very first song of the album. It's like um, Satan talking to God, basically talking smack to God. And then, um, you know, the other eight tracks there in the middle kind of follow along that same trajectory. But then the final song is God's response to Satan. And it is 
vicious. And the end of this song, I remember the first time I heard this, it was just like, holy balls. Like, how does somebody say something like that? But here's here's the quote from the end of the song, and then it, it goes into the final breakdown. It says, from the armories, the angels sing. You will see them in this suffering. From the armories, the angels sing. You will fear them when they lift their wings. They will sing to a world reborn. They will sing as I cut off your horns. And so that's an incredible, incredible song. Actually, uh, I've got a, a big tattoo on my right arm and shoulder. That's kind of like this part of the song played out. Uh, it's kind of a, a different take on a statue that I saw in Florence, but basically it's um, it's God cutting off Satan's horns. And so that that's a really, really cool song. And the thing is, it's called The Finisher. And if you're going to be an MMA fighter, you hope to be finishing people. But um, if I didn't go with that one, the other two that kind of come to mind is the song Whitewashed by August Burns Red. So August Burns Red, obviously they gave us permission to use. I say this every episode. They gave us permission to use their entire music library for anything that we want. So the song Whitewashed was actually in a video, one of our excursion videos that's on our website. So that song will be familiar, but that's off their Constellations album. And that's uh, probably my favorite metal intro ever. I mean, it's just such a heavy introduction to that song. So I really like that. Um, And then the other song would probably be Devastator by For Today. So For Today is a band that's no longer together, but this is, uh, it's off their, one of their early albums. It's called Breaker. But uh, you might recognize this hashtag that I put on Instagram, but it's let my name be feared at the gates of hell. The thing with For Today and a lot of their lyrical content, and to be honest, the lyrical content of the three bands that I just mentioned, it's incredibly aggressive towards Satan. So, so that's the thing is like, I've, as I've said before, I'm not a huge worship music fan. I, I feel like, you know, it's kind of worshiping Jesus as if he's your boyfriend. I don't really like that very much because he's the Lion of Judah, not our cutesy bootsy little bunny bunny. And so like these, these lyrics speak to me differently. And so it's, you know, whenever I uh, suggested you listen to the Impending Doom uh, album, their new album, a few, a few podcast episodes ago, it's kind of that thing. It's like, you should get pumped up when singing about Jesus. Like you shouldn't, I mean, in my opinion, I mean, there are times I guess when you could be overcome with emotion and maybe crying or something like that. But like whenever I'm really worshiping God using music, it's songs like these, like that, that I just suggested to you. It just really gets me going. So those would probably be the three, but uh, the finisher by O Sleeper would probably be the top one if I had to pick one. Next question. When was the last time you forgave someone who wronged you? Okay. So that's a good question. And to be honest with you, I would like to say, I would like to be able to pull out an exact example. Uh, but, but again, you know, my wife and I, we have a lot of interactions with one another. And so we forgive people back and forth for, you know, Oh, I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't have done that, or I shouldn't give an attitude and all that. But to, to be honest with you guys, and this is just, you know, full transparency here, I struggle quite a bit in this area of forgiveness, but it's, it's maybe not in the way that you think by hearing me say it like that. So what I mean by that is, there, there are 7 billion people on this planet, right? And not all of them are going to like you. Even if you have one of the most amenable personalities and you're just so great to be around and you're super altruistic, there's still going to be people that are going to find something about you they don't like. Maybe it's your facial features. Maybe it's your clothes. Maybe it's your accent. Maybe it's whatever. They're going to find something to, to do that with, with you. And so for me, I'm like, if someone doesn't like me, fine. There are literally 7 billion other people on this planet. One person not liking me is not going to bother me. Like if my wife didn't like me, that'd be a problem. If my teammates at my gym didn't like me, that'd probably be a problem. But you know, for the most part, I could really give a crap whether or not you like me. But on the other side of things as well is I'm a very loyal guy. I'm an incredibly loyal guy until you cross me, until you give me reason to not trust you, right? And so this is probably where my struggle comes in is 
when someone crosses me, I'm like, all right, I, I take the other side of that argument. I go, there are 7 billion other people on this planet. I don't need to have you close to me so that you can hurt me and disappoint me like that. So that you could, you know, basically not live up to the standard that I put forth for you or not to jump over that hurdle that I said incredibly low for you to jump over. Right. And so again, just to be honest, I know that's not the most Christian thing in the world. Obviously, uh, we, we have an entire setup with, with God and the triune God that is based on forgiveness and salvation and really the story of the gospel. But I will just say for me personally, it really comes down to that to where it's just like, man, there's way too many people on this planet for me to worry about someone that doesn't like me or worry about somebody that's going to cross me like that. And so I remember uh, even my wife saying that to somebody because there was an event that we set up and this guy, you know, he just blatantly lied to my face about not showing up. And it's kind of one of those things where it's like, I just don't have time for liars. I just don't really have the energy for it. And, you know, my wife was talking to another buddy of mine and my buddy was like, hey, is Kyle mad about, about that? And Kelsey, you know, she just kind of said it offhand. She was just kind of like, Look, Kyle's pretty straightforward. Like he will be the most loyal guy in the world to you until you mess with him. And then he just, he's done with you and he's not going to feel sad about it either. So, um, that is something that I guess if I would ask for prayer, that would be something that I feel like is, is something that needs to be adjusted on my side of things. So, uh, good question. Thanks a lot for making, for challenging me on my own podcast. Thanks a lot, jerk. So let's move on to the next question. All right. My pastor has a $7 million mansion. Is his wealth a fruit of the spirit or is he going to hell? Guys, are y'all trying to get me in trouble? We got weed, we got you know forgiveness, and now we got the the prosperity gospel stuff. So, um, he, I guess here's the thing: the easy answer to this is he's he's going to hell if he hasn't accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I mean, is that like the most PC answer I could have given to this? Like, yeah, you know, he's he's not going to be uh, in the afterlife with God if he hasn't accepted you know the the gospel message, right? That's pretty easy. But I guess on the other side, the hard answer is there might be a heart problem with your pastor. And, and I put the emphasis big time on might. There might be a heart problem with your pastor. I don't know that to be true, okay? But I do know that Jesus talked about money and he talked about money a lot. Like more than anything else in the Bible, you've probably heard that before. He talks about money. And it probably has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, how humans and the human heart is attracted to it and what wealth does for us, right? And it, you know, normally tells us that we don't need God. We just need our security and our wealth. But, you know, back in, in Matthew 19, we see Jesus talk about this. And this was in verses 23 and 24. He said, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so, so here's the deal is, I don't think having money is sinful, obviously. Like, I don't think if you're successful that that's not a blessing from God. But when you look at these examples, so you got guys like Joel Osteen. So Joel Osteen, you know, you've probably seen, you know, aerial photos of his mansion. It's a $10 million plus house, right? Uh, Then you have guys like Stephen Furtick. He's got a house that's almost $2 million and he got busted kind of by a local, I guess he tried to, you know, make it kind of a quiet thing and he kind of got busted by local news. Um, And he kind of had a weird apology. I guess that's just his thing. The dude just doesn't know how to apologize, but he talked about it at a sermon and he basically said, I'm sorry that you had to have those conversations conversations this week talking to his patrons and he said that the house was a gift from God and you know the thing was is he kind of changed his tone 
at the beginning he said it was an attack, like people were attacking him and attacking the gift God gave him. But then, you know, he kind of changed his tone after he probably talked to his lawyer and his PR people or something like that. But kind of in my opinion with, with pastors like that and pastors of any kind, even if you're, you're not on the mega church side of things, if you're in a tax exempt situation, why not share all of your financials? Like all of them. Like if you're a pastor, shouldn't your flock know if you have a housing allowance? Shouldn't they know what your salary is? Like the money that you make off your books that you're writing while on the clock at the church? You know, what your speaker fees are? Do you man, do you demand that you fly private or fly first class or all those things? Like that's not so that we can judge you, but it's like, hey bro, like we're, we're paying your salary here. Like if you work for the state, like right now I could go on and look at every salary for state employees in the state of Oklahoma. Because like my tax dollars directly pay for them to have their jobs, right? You know, I were, used to work at a university and it's like, you know, you look at what other people are making. There's, there's no secrets there. So I don't really understand why a pastor would, would have that. Um, but, but here's the other thing that I think is the big overarching thing about this question is a, one big reason why uh, certain believers don't listen to preachers is because of money, right? Either, you know, maybe they have a lot of it or they're always asking for it. That's, that's a lot of reasons why believers don't listen. But on the other side of things is a lot of people that are unbelievers. They look at these pastors and they look at these houses and they look at these jets and these Bentleys and all these things. And it just it doesn't seem right. It doesn't feel right. And so your pastor might not be Benny Hinn. He might not be ripping people off, but that's how he's viewed. He's lumped into that category and it just gives unbelievers and atheists uh, and, you know, moral relativists, it gives them even more ammunition to be like, well, look at that guy. So again, don't, don't mistake me and hear me say that if your pastor has a big house that he's going to hell, I think, I mean, none of us can make that call, but here's the big warning, I guess, that I would give to you is that if your pastor is preaching prosperity gospel messages, right? and has a mansion and is living a lavish life, you really need to beware in that situation. Beware. Because there's something funky going on there. Because I don't know a whole lot of prosperity gospel pastors that aren't rolling in it. Right? So it's like, you know, if God, you know, just open up the sky and, you know, and then these, these positive vibes are going to rain down dollar bills on you and all those different things. All these prosperity gospel people, they got money. They got a lot of it. So, so again, I think it is completely inappropriate for us to take the judgment seat of, well, this guy's clearly going to hell just kind of to go back to the original question. But at the end of the day, I think you should really be aware of anyone that's, you know, sporting a message like that. All right. Next question. Should collegiate athletes be paid? Okay. So, um, here's the thing is I've had a pretty well-formulated opinion on this for a long time and it has not shifted in any way, shape or form. No college athletes should not be paid. So here's the deal is uh, I know that not every college athlete is on scholarship, but a lot of college athletes are on scholarships. So they're already being paid by the school. So let's, let's just for the sake of this, let's talk about people that are on full scholarship. So if you have a basketball scholarship to Duke or football scholarship to Texas A&M or something like that, your school, and for a lot of these kids, it's out of state or private or something like that. It's paid for, right? It's taken care of. And so at the end of the day, it is your choice if you want to play a college sport, right? No one's making you play a college sport. So you're a, you're a stud athlete. You were a great football player in high school and you get offered a scholarship or an invitation to walk on a, on a football program at a college. You get to choose whether or not to do that. No one is forcing you. And people be like, oh, well, some of these kids don't have options and blah, blah, blah. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about whether or not we should pay these kids, right? But it's their choice. They don't have to play sports at all. 
They don't have to go to that school. They could go to a different school. They don't have to play that particular sport. They could play a different sport. So the thing is, is it's all about choice here. So if you go to college, you know what the setup is. Like nothing drives me more insane than when people sign a contract, like in the NFL, they sign a contract and they put their name down to it and then they have a good season or two and then they want to hold out. It's like you sign the contract. Like there's just as many people that sign contracts and it's bad for the team. You just so happen to sign a contract that's good for the team. So what's your job? Get up and do your job. But the thing about it that I don't feel like many people, you know, a lot of people that say that college athletes should be paid. These are people that, you know, have only worked in the public sector or maybe they've just been pundits for forever. They've never really had to do like a real private sector job before. But you just have to ask questions like this because most people don't don't really have a clue. So let's look at probably, let's look at Tim Tebow. Okay, Tim Tebow is probably the most famous collegiate athlete of all time of any sport. I think that's, a, that's pretty easy. If he's not the top one, he's in the top 10. So let's just use Tim Tebow. If we were paying college athletes while Tim Tebow was the quarterback at Florida, would we be paying Tim Tebow the same as the backup catcher on the softball team? Do they get the same amount of money? Should we pay Tim Tebow the same as a quarterback of like a D3 school? Does he get the same amount of money? You know, now how do we equal this out? Because, because here's the thing is you can't, you know, especially in this day and age, what if you paid female basketball players differently than you pay the male basketball players? Like, how are you going to make this equal? Right. There's, there's no extra title nine that you could add into there. That's going to take care of all those issues. But, but here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that most athletic departments in the country. And yes, I mean, most like overwhelmingly most, almost all of them are operating in the negative. Almost all of them are operating in the red. And so basically what you would be asking these people to do is they're already operating in the red. They're getting taken care of by all these other different things on campus, student fees or tuition or something like that. They're being taken care of. And now you're going to ask them to pay these, pay these athletes. Like with what money? This is like the most Bernie Sanders thing in the world. It's like, oh, we're going to pay for it. How? Don't worry about it. Like, it's just kind of, it doesn't make any sense. For the most part, the only sports that make money at most college campuses is football and men's basketball. That's it. And in some places, neither of those teams make money. So literally nothing makes money. Like you'll have, you know, Oklahoma State Wrestling, they probably make money. You know, Oregon State Baseball, they probably make money. But for the most part, these sports don't make any money. So the question I would ask to these people, that, yeah, they should be paid, is with what? And, you know, they always want to talk about how much these schools make for their bowl games and how much the coaches are, are paid and all these different things. But at the end of the day, that's their job. And if somebody wants to pay them extra uh, from the coffers of the university, let them. That's fine. That's totally fine. Because these kids, again, they have a choice. They don't have to play these sports. And so if you've chosen to play these sports... And if you can't have a job outside of it because of your, you know, requirements from the football team or the basketball team or the badminton team or whatever team you're on, it just is what it is. If you don't like it, you can quit. And then you can go into debt like just about every other, you know, student out there. They're going into debt in order to go to college. Like in a lot of these situations, you are paid for to go to college. So I don't really get the funk, right? So a little bit on a high, on high horse there, but I've literally never heard a compelling argument on the other side of things. It's just people basically talking into the ether. So... All right. Next question. Does God send people who haven't heard about him to hell? How should we respond to people who have objections about hell? Okay. So a couple of different questions there. So let's look at the first part. So the thing that I know about God that I'm very, very comfortable with about God is that his judgment will be fair. I mean, we see that all over the place in scripture and I'll pull out a couple. So Psalm 96, 13 says this, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. 
And Paul kind of corroborates this later when he's talking in Acts. This is Acts 17, 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, obviously talking about Jesus. So that's the thing that I, that I know to be true here is that God is going to judge fairly. And the thing is, is his definition of fair is not necessarily going to align with your definition of fair. So let's go in to talk a little bit more about that. I want to kind of do another quote from Paul. This is Paul talking in Romans, and this is uh, Romans 2, and I'm going to do verses 11 through 16, because I think this will be helpful for us when it comes to people that maybe have never heard the message of Jesus, and you're wondering, you know, where are these people going to go? So Romans 2, starting in verse 11 through 16. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It's very important there. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do not what do, or sorry, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience is also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So that's really important there. Sorry, it was a little clunky in the reading, but yeah, again, you know, Romans 2, 11 through 16, I think is really important. And there's a lot of people that have given their summaries of kind of what that means, but probably the, the most succinct way that I saw it summed up for our use and for our digestion was by Pastor Stephen J. Cole. And so he talks about that right here. And, and again, I'll provide the link to this later so you can read all of it, but I just want to read this section to you right here. And here's a section. In Romans 2, 12 through 16, Paul is establishing the point of verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. God will judge everyone with perfect justice. Paul is anticipating a Jewish objection, but surely God will treat us more favorably than pagan Gentiles. We know God's ways are as revealed in his law, but they don't. Or perhaps a Gentile would object. It's not fair for God to judge me for disobeying a standard that I knew nothing about. I've done the best that I could with what I knew. God won't judge me, will he? So Paul shows God with impartiality. God will impartially judge everyone for sinning against against the light that they were given. His line of reasoning goes like this. The Gentiles sinned without the law, so he will perish without the law. The Jews sinned under the law, and so he will be judged by the law. And that's verses, uh, or book two, or chapter two, verse 12. In other words, the ver- as verse six stated, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Hearing the law isn't good enough. You must be a doer of the law. And that's 2.13. Although the Gentiles did not have God's law, they all have an inner sense of right and wrong. That's verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. And although occasionally they may do what is right, they all have sinned against what they know to be right. Their consciousnesses and thoughts convict them of their guilt. And that's 2.15. But whatever they think, or they may think of themselves, the day is coming when God will judge not only outward deeds, but also the secrets of men through Jesus Christ, in accordance with the gospel. That's 2.16. To sum up, Paul is saying this, since God will impartially judge everyone for sinning against what they know to be right, everyone is guilty, and thus everyone needs the gospel. So I, I hope that's helpful to, to the guy that put in this question. I really appreciate that. I hope that's helpful. 
So again, this is a fair God, but this is a just God. There has to be judgment. And he's leaving it open there to where you're going to be judged under what you know. So, you know, I've thought about this before. It's kept me up at night. Well, what about these unreached people groups? You know, these tribal peoples that literally don't even know the first, you know, any words of English, much less the story of the gospel uh, in any language, including their own. But I I think this speaks to that. And so to the second part of your question, the second part of your question, uh, just to remind listeners, is how should we respond to people who have objections about hell? And this one's pretty easy. Is your opinion about hell changes nothing about the reality of hell? So people are like, well, I don't really think a good God would send somebody to hell. Like that's, that doesn't matter. Like your opinion really doesn't matter. So think about this, that, you know, Rob Bell. So, uh, that's, that's a guy who's pretty much a, a pagan now. He's like Oprah's favorite person on the planet, but he wrote a book called Love Wins which was basically talking about hell couldn't possibly exist if God was of love. And I love that Francis Chan wrote an entire book called Erasing Hell, just responding to this book. But again, just because hell makes you uncomfortable, just because you don't understand exactly how hell works or how it reflects you or anything like that, it really doesn't change the reality of it. So my encouragement to this listener would be if if you're in a situation where people are talking about hell and they're just like, man, I don't really like that. And that doesn't really make sense to me. It really doesn't matter. It's kind of one of the same thing. Like if someone's like, well, I don't believe in gravity. It's like, well, jump off of that building and you're going to hit the ground. Like your, your belief in gravity changes nothing. All right. Next question. Who were your favorite athletes, any sport, when you were growing up? Okay, so um, let's look at baseball first, since that's the greatest sport ever invented. Um, When I was a little kid, my favorite athlete, my favorite player was Mark McGuire. And I wish it wasn't, because the guy's like a dirty, rotten cheater and liar. And I wish I didn't buy all his baseball cards and spend all my summer money on his rookie card. But I did. So that was my dude, even though I I can't stand to even see the guy now. But I also really liked uh, Ken Griffey Jr., uh, Randy Johnson, uh, Pudge Rodriguez. So the first uh, major league game I went to was a Rangers game. And so that was like the Pudge Rodriguez, uh, Juan Gonzalez era of the Texas Rangers. So I really liked them. And I thought Pudge, he was just great on defense. You know, Randy Johnson, one of the greatest pitchers ever, maybe the greatest left-handed pitcher ever. And then Ken Griffey Jr., I just, I don't really know how you have a sweeter swing than that. I think in modern day, I think guys like Corey Seager and Cody Bellinger, uh, they happen to be on the same team, but they have just incredibly beautiful left-handed swings, but nothing is better than Griffey. Um, uh, with basketball, it's, I mean, straight up, Michael Jordan. I mean, I grew up in the era where Michael Jordan was literally wrecking fools, and so just destroying the Sonics and destroying the Jazz and all that. And so, uh, for a little stretch there, I was really, I really liked Hakeem Olajuwon when I was a little kid, but I mean, when I was a little kid, it was just being mesmerized by Michael Jordan. I remember telling my grandma, uh, you know, she was asking me what I wanted for Christmas. And I was like, you know, I want a Chicago Bulls hat. And it was like crazy to me that anybody would be a fan of any other team. I was like, why would anyone root for anybody else? The Bulls are clearly the best. So MJ all the way on that. Uh, In the NFL, I really liked Barry Sanders and Brett Favre. So they were, I think they won co-MVPs even one year, but I just love Barry Sanders' style. He played for an awful team behind a terrible offensive line. And uh, every time he got to the end zone, it was just like, yeah, yeah, here's the ball. So I love that about him. You know, Brett Favre, just the gunslinger style, just going crazy. Uh, I had a buddy who played for the New York Jets, and so I actually went up there and watched the game when Brett Favre played for the Jets that one year, which was awesome. Um, I guess I also liked Kerry Collins. This is super, super random. But when I was a little, little kid, I was like eight or nine or something like that, the, the Carolina Panthers was an expansion franchise that came in with the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars. And so like Kerry Collins came out of Penn State. And I was like, that's going to be my dude. And I started uh, you know, collecting all of his cards and like that was going to be my team. And I got, you know, a Panther starter jacket that year for Christmas. And I was like, this is awesome. And I even remember, I don't know if y'all remember this, but Kerry Collins like quit football 
This was before he made his comeback and he played for like the Giants or something like that. But he like quit football to like go to Europe and like find himself. And I remember being a little kid and I was just like crying and my dad's trying to like explain to me that, you know, he's just, he wanted to make this decision for himself. And I was like, what's in Europe, dad? Like what's in Europe? What, what is he looking for? So that's kind of funny. But yeah, Kerry Collins was apparently a weirdo, but you know, that was, he was one of my dudes growing up. But I guess uh, other sports, um, I liked Ryan Nyquist. Uh, he was a BMX guy, so he was a dirt BMX guy. So everyone was like a Dave Miro person. So I was like, I'm going to be a Ryan Nyquist guy. Uh, Michael Johnson, I guess if you're thinking Olympics, you know, he had the gold shoes and he was going all crazy back in the day uh, running sprints. So that was cool. Uh, <laughs> Dominic Mucciano. I don't know if y'all know that name, but she was on that like dream team, uh, 1996 Olympic team uh, in Atlanta where Carrie Strug like broke her leg and, you know, on the final vault or whatever. But I thought Dominic Mucciano was like the cutest thing in the world. I had to match crush on her when I was a little kid. That was like, I guess my first celebrity crush that wasn't Kelly Kapowski or something like that. So, um, yeah, those would be some of the athletes and there, there's probably some others here or there, you know, there's Tony Hawk and, and, and things like that. And just some random sports here or there, you know, Wayne Gretzky, Brett Hull, but, uh, those were the athletes that I followed the most. All right. Next question. How do we properly use accountability with other men? And how do we keep accountability from spilling over into inappropriate judgment? So I think this is a really important question here. The thing about it is uh, the guy who asked me this question is a guy that actually spent quite a bit of time with training. And this is a group of guys that get together on Sunday nights and we get together and we were normally going over a book. We have some time for discussion and then we train some jujitsu and do some other training. And, you know, we, we had a guy share in the group this week about something that happened. Uh, one of the guys in the group, his wife had a miscarriage and, you know, it was kind of one of those things where it was just kind of, it was a really, really important moment for our group. Because that's kind of an you know important thing to share, but it's kind of like, how do you share that and what do you say? And, and it just opened the door to a lot of very good conversations in the group. And, uh, but the thing is, is like, th- there should be accountability in groups like that because most guys don't have accountability when they spend all their time with them- themselves. You're basically only accountable to yourself and maybe to your, to your wife, depending on your relationship. But, you know, the thing I like to talk about all the time is like the atheist's favorite scripture is judge not lest ye be judged, right? They're like, y'all Christians are just always out there judging people and all these different things. But, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about that because, you know, that comes from Matthew 7. So that's Matthew 7, 1 through 5. And this is Jesus talking, but and I'll go ahead and read that here. Judge not that you be not judged. For with judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the thing that's important there is the very last part there of verse five, which is to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So this is actually telling you, this is Jesus telling you, that you need to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But he's just basically telling you from for alignment purposes, you need to worry about yourself first. Get yourself right before you start messing with anybody else. But he is telling you that you need to help other people out through judgment. And then he, Paul even talked about this with the Romans, uh, with the Roman Christians, and he basically told them not to judge. And this was in Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of the brother. 
But the, the thing about this is in uh, when Paul's letter to the Corinthian Christians, um, he basically said that they must judge sinful believers and let God deal with the people that are non-believers, right? So you judge the people that are inside of your believer community and let God deal with the people that are outside of that. And so this was talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13. For what have I have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so the thing is with accountability is what you get from these verses, from these two by Paul and one recorded uh, about Jesus talking, is we are to judge people that are inside the church. We, We certainly are to do that. What you're not to do is to take the judgment seat of God right? You're not to be like, well, I decree that this is good behavior and bad behavior and you're going to hell for that, or I'm punishing you for that. That's obviously not your right and that's not your place, right? So the thing that I think is important here is when you're in any type of accountability community, the the first rule that I guess I would look at is that if the person's not willing to be held accountable, you can't hold them accountable. So if someone's, you know, fat and out of shape, you can't just go up to them and be like, hey, you're a Christian, uh, you need to eat less and move more. Like, you shouldn't expect them to be like, yeah, yeah, you know what? You're right. And again, I'm the type of guy that would have that conversation with somebody, but this person has to trust to trust you. It's a little bit different. If that person comes up to you and says, man, I let myself go. I'm a hundred pounds overweight and I got a kid on the way. And you know, I don't, I don't want them to ever see me as fat and all those different things. And I want to be around long. And, and at that point it's for you to kind of step in and help them. But also it is imperative upon you probably to broach that subject with them at some point, even if they haven't come up to you. So when we're thinking about accountability purposes, in, in my group of guys that I'm specifically talking about here, if I see that somebody, sh- you know, maybe cheating on their wife, maybe they're looking at pornography, maybe they're not using language that is glorifying of God, maybe they're not taking care of their bodies, maybe they're not um, doing things in the public sphere that is going to help them spread the gospel, any of those things, make up a myriad of things, it is required of me to help that person through judgment and accountability. To, to have that conversation, to have that awkward conversation, to put some chips in the center and risk some relational equity in order to maybe set them on a better path. And I have to be ready to receive that as well. So if I'm doing any of those things I just listed or something else outside of that that is sinful and somebody comes to me about it, I got to be able to lay my pride aside for a second and be like, you know what, brother, you're right. I do need to adjust that. You know, I, I was talking rudely on the phone to my wife just then and you overheard that. And that's not good for me to do. And I'm really glad that you reached out and told me. Now, I would like to say that every time that's happened for me, that it just, you know, worked out. And I was like, yeah, cool. You know, thanks. For, thanks for rebuking me. But, you know, I, I have my my moments when it comes to to uh, being humble and listening to those types of things. But that doesn't change the setup about what we're supposed to do. We are called to keep our brothers in line, to use judgment. But But the important thing here is if somebody is not a believer and they're not in your sphere of influence, you can't judge them based on, based on what we're doing. That's God's job. So you would never go into the house uh, of Muslims and judge them according to what's taught in the Bible. That's not your place. It's your place to have that conversation. It's your place to share the gospel with them, but you can't take the judgment seat there. Like, and you can't look at their diet or their customs and say, well, that doesn't really jive with what I do. You wouldn't appreciate if that, did, that they did that to you. If a, if a Sikh or, or a Hindu or someone like that came into your house and tried to change things around on you because you don't align with that worldview, <clears throat> our God is going to deal with them. It's our job to share the gospel. It's our job to get them to understand who Jesus is and who he can be for them. Next question. 
is the UFC becoming too much like the WWE? And specifically, he's talking about the uh, Daniel Cormier and Brock Lesnar scuffle. So um, y'all probably saw this a few weeks ago, but UFC 226, uh, that was a huge super fight. You know, we, we are kind of in the era of super fights now, but this was definitely a super fight. Um, Stipe Miocic is the heavyweight champion of the world. He's the greatest heavyweight in the history of mixed martial arts. And uh, Daniel Cormier, who's one of the greatest fighters ever, and the, was the light heavyweight champion, the 205 champion, was going to go up to heavyweight to challenge Stipe Miocic for his belt. So obviously by now, y'all know what happened. DC knocked out Stipe in the first round. It was really incredible. He clinched up and then threw, threw a short right hand, dropped him, and then finished him on the ground. It was incredible. But before the fight, you saw that Brock Lesnar was there, and it's like, well, Brock Lesnar doesn't normally show up someplace unless he's going to be, you know, picking a fight of some kind. And so, uh, you know, afterwards, Joe Rogan's talking to DC and then DC takes the mic and then he calls out Brock Lesnar and Brock Lesnar comes in the cage and he pushes DC and everyone's smiling and Joe Rogan doesn't know what to do. And, you know, the, the people that are there doing security, they don't really know what to do. And, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of, it felt WWE like, and Brock Lesnar got on the mic and, you know, said a bunch of bad words and called out this and called out that and like punched the camera and did all this crazy stuff. Here's the thing. The UFC is not becoming too much like the WWE because for every one thing there's been like that, there's been a billion other things that aren't anything like that at all. So there, there is kind of this thing where uh, the guys that talk trash do get more opportunities. So you think of a guy like Connor who has backed it up, or you think like a, a guy like Chel Sonnen or Colby Covington or guys like that, that talk trash. These guys may have gotten opportunities that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise if they were quiet. But I don't think that necessarily makes it like WWE because in WWE, that that's fake, right? You know, these are athletes that are actually taking bumps and doing things like that, but there's no, uh, no wonder in the back about what the outcome is going to be. They, they know before they walk out there how this is going to go, right? But they, they don't have that in MMA. So you can talk all you want and, and you can do all those things and you can, have your, you can have your lines ready to go and ready to spit out. But at the end of the day, they lock the cage and it's you two and a referee and it's a real fight. There's no whispering in each other's ears like, all right, go down here. Or, I'm going to throw you off the top turnbuckle or something like that. So uh, no, I don't think this is becoming too much like the WWE. I can say for me, um, <clears throat> I wasn't terribly bothered by all that stuff that happened afterwards. It was ridiculous. At the end of the day, Brock Lesnar, Daniel Cormier should not be much of a fight. DC should be able to handle Brock Lesnar incredibly easily. Brock is not going to out-wrestle DC, and Brock does not like getting punched in the face. So that does not exactly bode well for their future setup. But yeah, so still a huge fan of the uh, UFC. That WWE nonsense with Brock Lesnar notwithstanding. So next question. What are your thoughts on the Revoice conference? Okay, so so to be honest, when I got this question, I had no idea what, what the Revoice conference was. But <clears throat> what I did is I went and looked it up, and this is happening apparently this year in St. Louis, or maybe it already happened. I'm not exactly sure. But this was the tagline for this conference. It was supporting, encouraging, and empowering gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other LGBT Christians so that they can flourish while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. Okay, so it was kind of one of those things I was like, all right, well, I guess there's a conference full of people that are going to go and do that. So uh, first of all, I guess I would refer all of you back to episode 25 of this podcast. And it was a podcast I did uh, called Why I Stopped Using the Word Faggot. And so I think that was a very important podcast, especially for a lot of guys like myself and a lot of my listeners out there that used to use that word regularly in, you know, you know, busting each other's balls type settings or in an athletic setting or something like that. So 
Here's the thing. When I first heard that this conference was for LGBT Christians, I immediately, you know, my antenna went up and I was like, whoa, okay, what are we doing here? Are we going to be celebrating this or are we going to be absolving them of some sort of sin? Like, what are we doing? But I guess the thing that was encouraging to me, a couple things were encouraging, was kind of the, the last part of the tagline when it said, you know, while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. So it doesn't seem like they're going to be rewriting scripture there. And here's the other thing is the keynote is being delivered by Wesley Hill. And so Wesley Hill was kind of the main person about, you know, episode 25 of this podcast. It was his book, Washed and Waiting. That was kind of the the center point of that whole podcast, right? And so, and his views were obviously that this is a celibate Christian theologian who for the rest of his life is going to go to bed alone and he's not going to live out his his gay sexual desires uh, for the sake of the gospel of Christ. And so I think that was very important uh, and there should be a place for people like this that are same-sex attracted to where they're not just being told that, no, you know, God just loves you as you are. You don't need to change because if that was true, we don't need Jesus, right? But um, the thing is, is they might be towing the line of heresy you know, if this event ends up celebrating sinfulness, but from, for all intents and purposes and from the things that I've seen, having not gone to the conference and having not heard the speeches, I don't even know if it has happened yet. I didn't look at the exact dates, but from where I'm sitting, I think it's going to be all right. But I will say this, um, there was a podcast I listened to recently and shout out to my boy CJ that's down at Dallas Theological Seminary. He sent me this podcast called Cross Politic uh, so C-R-O-S-S-P-O-L-I-T-I-C. So cross-politic. And it, you can search for it on Apple iTunes or Google Play. And it's cross-politic show and podcast. And there's like a black and white uh, logo. And just started listening to it literally like a week ago. So I've only listened to a couple of different episodes. But they did an episode back on, let me see when this was released. It was on July 15th. And it's called Family Meeting with Greg Johnson, pastor of Memorial Presbyterian Church and host church of Revoice.us. And so the thing that was interesting is, again, I haven't attended the conference. I haven't heard any of the keynotes. I don't know what's being said, but the three hosts of the show really lit into this pastor. And I can't say that I disagree with a lot of their arguments. And to be honest, it's made me kind of rethink my position on some of this. Uh, so I don't necessarily regret some of the things from uh, podcast 25, but it did kind of open up a different, some different viewpoints on that. Like, uh, where exactly Wesley Hill's coming from or people that are like him. And so, uh, again, I don't think I've, I've changed my philosophy or standpoint wholesale, but these guys brought up a, a lot of really, really good points. And again, I have not listened to this podcast for, for very long. So if they've said crazy things in the past, this is not an endorsement of everything that they've ever said. But I will say that um, these guys would not let this pastor off the hook when he was trying to do this Christianese or liberalese or just basically making up bull crap. They wouldn't let him off the hook, which I really, really appreciate. And I've had conversations with guys that are in the ministry space, in the podcast space, and they'll have people that are on and they'll be talking about this subject and they let them off the hook. They, they just let them say bull crap. And there's like, oh, this should be okay. And I'm like, no, like you, you gotta, you gotta keep going and you gotta drive some things home. So I would encourage every single one of you to listen to that. So again, go to the Pro- cross politics show and podcast. Um, and let's see if it's got an episode number. Just one sec. Uh, yeah, so it's just the July 15th episode, so it should be one of the very recent ones on there. So um, would highly, highly suggest that you listen to that. So again, listen to my podcast 25 on this, on this, and then listen to that interview that they did with him, and uh, it should give you at least a basic overview of what to expect. Next question. 
what is joy? What is the joy you find in drinking whiskey? Okay, so uh, this is from a good buddy of mine who actually uh, will have whiskey f- with me from time to time. So, so here's the thing, kind of like I told you early in the podcast, I didn't have my first drink of anything until I was 20, and it was when I was overseas in Ireland, and it was legal there, and so I had one drink. And the thing is, is alcohol has never been a big part of my life. Like even now, um, I may have you know three or four whiskeys on in one sitting, and then not have another whiskey for two months, or I may have one whiskey and then I have a whiskey for a few weeks. Like, it's just not a huge part of my life. I don't have to have whiskey every day. Um, but at the end of the day, like I've never enjoyed beer. I've had three or four beers my entire life and I thought they all tasted terrible. And for a guy that doesn't really drink his calories anyway, like I don't drink soda, I don't drink coffee. I don't, I don't do any of those things. It, you know, it makes sense that I wouldn't like whiskey and, or wouldn't like beer, but I have always been a fan of whiskey. So even at my bachelor party, that was the very first time I ever had whiskey. I had a buddy bring a bottle of wild turkey, which is not an, uh, an effectively, it's not a very good whiskey, but he brought it and I, I drank it right out of the bottle and it just, you know, settled right through uh, into my stomach, right through my palate. There was no, you know, kicking the ground or doing anything crazy like that. So it just, it just agreed with my palate. And since then, you know, it's kind of been a hobby of mine and I've had some incredible, incredible whiskeys. I've had 50 year old scotch. I've had 40 year old scotch. I've had a lot of rare bourbons and things like that. And so I've got some good friends that, um, you know, I've got one friend in particular that his whiskey collection is worth well over $5 million. He's one of the largest private collectors of whiskey on the planet. And so, and he's kind of taken a liking to, to my style and my, and my taste. And so, um, it's been a really cool journey that I get to share with people and I get to share with a lot of Christians as well. I've helped uh, some guys kind of work their way from crown honey or honey crown up to some, some better bourbons and things like that. And, and the thing about it is, and I know for some of you, especially if you have a more conservative background, like your, your ears are perking up here. Like, what am I going to be talking about? But here's the thing is Jesus's first miracle was turning water into wine. There's plenty of scripture in support of alcohol, but never the abuse of it. You'll never you'd be able to read a scripture and think that God is, is giving us this, uh, <clears throat> so that we can abuse it. Kind of same thing, going back to the, the marijuana example, we talked about the very beginning of this podcast, but I, I really do enjoy drinking whiskey. And I've had people ask me this before, so I guess I'll get into it. I'll, like kind of what my favorite bourbon is and what my favorite, um, uh, scotch is. And so the, the best bourbon I've ever had was I had uh, Pappy Van Winkle 23. And that is just an incredible, incredible bourbon. So if you know anything about that, it's an incredibly rare family of bourbons. Uh, but the best whiskey that has ever been, <clears throat> you know, past my lips and into my stomach was Lagavulin 25. And so uh, if you know anything about Lagavulin, most of you have probably had Lagavulin 16. So if you're a Parks and Rec fan, that's Ron Swanson's drink of choice. He drinks that several times throughout the show. And, you know, Lagavulin, they have a Lagavulin 8 and a 12. But uh, one of my buddies had a Lagavulin 25. And this is, you know, a very expensive bottle of scotch and it's incredibly rare. But it was just fantastic. Of, of all the Scotch uh, regions, there's Highland, Lowland, uh, Speyside, Campbelltown, and Isla. I'm an Isla fan. That's incredibly peaty, smoky Scotches. And that's what Lagavulin is, you know, Lafroy, Gardbeg, those types. But it was just an incredible, incredible whiskey. So if you ever get an opportunity to have any of the Pappies, definitely partake. But also, if you can see a Lagavulin 25 anywhere, you should definitely grab that. All right, next question. What's the most important role for the man of the house? So I guess I kind of have a twofold answer here. And I I think the important roles for a man is to be number one, protector, and also to be model. And I don't mean like, you know, runway model, but that you should be a protector and model. So on the protector side, you should be able to physically, financially, and mentally protect your family. 
You should be able to to stand in front of a stand in the brink with your wife and, and take care of her in those ways. To be able to physically protect uh, your family, you should be able to be able to provide provide for them um, and have uh, the mental capacity to stand up for them mentally. But also, you need to model. Um, what it is to be a man. And again, we talk about that all the time. That's a guy that cultivates spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. And so in terms of the role for a man in the house, if you're protecting and modeling for them and helping them in those areas, I think you'll be squared away. Next question. You've smashed all your workouts for the week. You have eaten clean every meal. It is now time for your cheat meal. And your wife says, you pick, babe. What are you having? Okay, so if I'm doing a cheat meal, I'm going crazy. And so the uh, the restaurant where I go the most crazy is here in, in Oklahoma City. It's called Cajun King. So it is a Cajun buffet place, which automatically you're like, that sounds gross. But here's the deal. Is the family, from what I understand, this is what I've been told, this family was displaced by Hurricane Katrina. And so this is like a legit... Cajun Creole like group of people and they brought their restaurant and their recipes here to Oklahoma City and it is some of the best um, the best jambalaya fried chicken uh, catfish that, that I've ever had like home style cooking soul food like that kind of that's like my favorite type of food and I will just eat as much of it as possible and so there was one time when I ate there at Cajun King and this was very gluttonous of me so you know please judge harshly but I literally got 100, 200 feet out of the parking lot and I had to pull over and I said, babe, you're going to have to drive home because I'm going to have to sit in the passenger seat and just think about not throwing up because that's like exactly how much food I stuffed in. But here's the other thing with me. Whenever I eat crazy meals, I feel like I have two stomachs. Like I can be completely stuffed from the entrees and everything and then somebody offers up dessert and I'm like, yeah, I can kind of do that. So if I'm going crazy, I'm going to hit up Cajun King, eat three or four plates of food and then I'm probably going to hit up something like banana pudding or milkshake or ice cream of some kind. So banana pudding is probably my favorite dessert on the planet. I love my wife's banana pudding. It's kind of their family recipe. So that would probably be what I would do for my cheat meal. Just And one time I tried to calculate the calories, but I got about a quarter of the way in and got depressed. So I was like, I don't even care. If I'm going to eat there, I'm going crazy. All right, next question. How many hours per week should a man devote to his vocation? So this is an important question. This comes from a buddy of mine. He's actually a lawyer. But the thing about this question is it's contextual to the person and it's contextual to the situation. Um, Because I think there are guys that work a lot of hours that it fits for their lifestyle. It fits for their relationship with their wife, uh, where they're still a dutiful uh, husband, and they're also a doting father, and they're a present father. But then there are other people that work a ton of hours, and they can't be those other things. Uh, they certainly don't spend any time with God because, you know, they're trying to spend all the time with their boss or with their clients or something like that. And then there are people that don't work nearly enough. So they're not protecting their family financially. They're not taking care of business. Uh, They're putting their family in a precarious financial situation, which I see a lot in my line of work. And so uh, that's something that's not really appropriate either. So I guess I'm kind of skating around this question a little bit. Um, I guess the answer that I would give is in terms of the amount of time that you should devote to your vocation, it is whatever is an appropriate amount of time that will allow you to provide for your family in a way that would be pleasing to God. Because here's the thing is if making that extra 10% on, on the, you know, of commission or something like that is going to take away from your late relationship with God, your relationship with your wife and your relationship with your kids, I don't think God would be cool with that. Right. So that's kind of the thing is that you should probably avoid that. 
But for all of us guys, we know that sweet spot. Some of us don't don't get to choose. Some of us work in that normal cubicle eight to five job and your hours are what they are. You don't get overtime. You have to show up by eight. You take your one hour lunch and you got to leave at five. But other guys, they get to choose. Maybe they own their own, the own business or they're in type of some type of sales. And so you can kind of control your calendar. It should be whatever helps is conducive for your family and allows you to still be a good father. Uh, you know, husband, take care of yourself, be a good Christian, you know, follow, still be a disciple of Jesus and all that. Cause all those things do take time. All right, guys, last question here. What are the best tools for a man to keep his masculinity and his Christian orthodoxy and survive in our current culture? Okay. So the first part of that was basically keeping your masculinity. And, you know, for us, we talk about it. I'll say it again, cultivating spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So we've had a lot of guys do our 21 day devotional on the YouVersion Bible app. So we talk about that a lot, but you know, at this point, over 40,000, 41,000 dudes have completed it. So if you go to YouVersion on your Bible app or on Bible.com, just search under planned shirts, undaunted life, a man's podcast and our 21 day devotionals there. But that's just kind of a good primer for, you know, seven days on spiritual, seven on mental and seven on physical resilience. So that's one way to kind of keep up with how to keep your masculinity. But I guess the other part of that, that question is talking about Christian orthodoxy and, you know, how to survive in current culture. Culture doesn't supersede the Bible, y'all. Like it doesn't. So culture would like to say that we're moving past the Bible and we've progressed and we've we've gotten better. I mean, we're killing babies by the millions, but no, we've gotten better. We've pro- progressed overall. So f- for me, I, I don't really appreciate that line of thinking, but, but the Bible is our foundation as Christians. And so the 21-day devotional is going to really help you dig in because every single day obviously has scripture readings with them, but uh, the culture can't do anything to supersede what, what the truths are of the, of the Bible, you know, to include and in especially the gospel. So if you're trying to keep, you know, your masculinity, look to the person of Jesus, who was the greatest man ever. If you're thinking about Christian orthodoxy, where does Christian orthodoxy come from? From the Bible. How, how can we survive in our current culture? Well, we look to the Bible to help us. We look to the Bible to get wisdom. So that's how I would answer that one. So thanks a lot, guys. We're going to do a quick resilience boost here before I let you go. We are a men's ministry, as you know this by now. Our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So for today, we're going to focus on mental and spiritual. And I just want to kind of, I listed some things here that I talked about here during this podcast, because I want to make sure that you know, whenever it's my ideas or if it's somebody else's that I'm borrowing their ideas, I want to always be upfront with that. So the stuff I included here is I have the article, Marijuana to the Glory of God. I have that article in here. When pot is legal, what do we say? And is recreational marijuana use a sin? I also uh, put the music videos for the three songs I talked about earlier. So that's The Finisher by O Sleeper, Whitewash by August Burns Red, and Devastator by For Today. I put those in here. And then also that part where we're talking about, you know, basically, can we know if people are going to hell if they haven't heard, you know, the message of the gospel, that kind of thing. It's an article called Lesson 11, God's Impartial Judgment, Romans 2, 12 through 16. So I put all those in there just so that y'all could follow up with that later. All right. Thank you as always for listening to this podcast. We really, really appreciate it. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen. Make sure you share this on social media. If you use the hashtag Undaunted Life, we'll be sure to find it and give it a thumbs up. If we deserve a five-star review in your brain, please let us know that by giving us a five-star review. Hit that fifth star and then also don't forget to leave a couple of sentences to let us know why you like it. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2018 so and for the beginning of 2019. So if you want to reach out to me in that way, just hit me at info at undaunted.life. Again, info at undaunted.life. I can come to speak to your church, to your team, uh, 
to your Sunday school, whatever you want. Our website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life and Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. You can also check our free devotionals out on the YouVersion Bible app just by searching Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. And real quick before I let you go, if you guys want to make your way onto this podcast, if you have questions for me, always do it the same way. Leave the questions on an Instagram or a Facebook post or something like that, or you can send them directly to me, info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.